0: Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Kennelly for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, March 23rd, 2018. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Almanis, Publishers Weekly senior writer, who joins me today from Philadelphia at the Public Library Association's annual conference. Welcome, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So, in spite of yet another snowstorm hitting the U.S.'s northeast this week, Andrew, you managed to make it to the city of brotherly love for PLA, which kicked off on Wednesday as former acting attorney general Sally Yates delivered the keynote. You were expecting spring weather, I'm sure, but you got a blizzard instead.
1: Yeah, can I just say that I want my money back or something? I mean, this is, what, four Nor'easters now in the first three weeks of March here on the East Coast? And, you know, I had this trip booked, as you know, the low 60s, comfortable spring in Philadelphia. But it's brutal here. It's cold and icy, and it snowed for the last 36 hours. And actually now it's a little better. It's a little sunnier, and it's just slushy. But... This is not right. I just want to go on record and say that. (laughs) Uh, But that said, despite a lot of travel snarls that happened on the opening day of the conference on Wednesday when the blizzard really hit, this PLA meeting has been jammed. Uh, And Sally Yates absolutely filled the auditorium on Wednesday. Right in the teeth of that blizzard, librarians still managed to make it there, which after a really lightly attended meeting at the ALA Midwinter Meeting in Denver is probably just what ALA needed. PLA, the Public Library Association, of course, is a division of the American Library Association, uh, the largest division of the ALA, in fact. I have to say the energy here in Philly is really high as well, and the meeting seems to be very well attended, and the program is an absolute winner. There's been a lot of very interesting stuff, and it closes out tomorrow morning, but I think so far, you know, ALA really has to be pleased.
0: In January 2017, Andrew, Sally Yates had refused to defend in court the president's hotly contested order restricting travel to the U.S. by citizens of a number of Muslim-majority nations. And she then very quickly saw her name added to the list of those fired from government service by Donald Trump. She delivered a strong opening keynote, you reported.
1: She really did. You know, she's kind of started the list of people leaving the Trump administration, even though she was actually a holdover from the Obama administration. But she really did deliver a powerful keynote. And I have to say, we don't know what's next for Sally Yates. And on stage, she said she didn't know really what was next for her. But she sounded very presidential. She sounded like somebody who could certainly run for public office. Uh, she was very impressive and offered a stirring speech, which was followed by a QA and a with the PLA president, Pam Smith, in which she urged librarians to stand up for truth. And she said over the course of our nation's history, we have always faced these, what she called inflection points. And we have to decide as a country what we are and what we stand for. And now is one of those times. So she stressed that, you know, that statement wasn't supposed to advocate for any particular political party or policy, but really rather to advocate for a vigorous debate that is based on truth and facts, which she pointed out are under attack right now.
0: So did Sally Yates talk at all about her dismissal from the White House or about the Trump administration?
1: Well she did in fact though it's worth noting she never mentioned the name Trump a single time. Not once. The speech was completely apolitical, which is a requirement of the ALA of course as, as a national nonprofit. Um, The vast majority of her speech was about the ideals that we as a nation aspire to even if we often fail to live up to them. And without mentioning the name Trump, she still got some shots in. You know, she was decrying especially the systematic undermining of trust in our nation's essential institutions, including the FBI and the free press, as well as attacks on objective truth itself. She said at one point that we can't control whether our public servants lie to us, but we can't control whether we hold them accountable for those lies or whether we, you know, out of exhaustion or whether we want to protect our own political objectives, we look the other way from those lies and hence we normalize indifference to the truth. And you can interpret that any way you like like but when i hear that i'm looking at trump and the gop leadership especially you know when i hear the words normalize inference to truth or turning away for our own political interests but again she really focused on the need to stand up for truth which i don't think is particularly political or controversial these days there is such a thing as objective truth she said a line which got a lot of applause and a standing ovation and you know you can debate policies and issues but we have to debate those policies and issues on common held truths, on common facts, she said, rather than on just raw appeals to emotion or fear or appealing to something that people are anxious to believe.
0: So Sally Gates defended truth. And I suppose she also defended the American way or at least the U.S. Constitution. She
1: very much did. It was a, it was a Superman speech: truth, justice, in the American way. Absolutely. Uh, and in the Q and A period with with Pam Smith, uh, she offered to answer any question at all. So she was asked about the travel ban and about her dismissal by President Trump. And it was interesting. She told librarians that she first learned about the travel ban uh, that was levied against seven Muslim majority nations late on a Friday afternoon, literally like at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon, from her assistant via a New York Times. News article. And this, even though the DOJ was going to have to be in court the next morning to defend the ban, the White House never involved the DOJ in any discussions about the ban or even let them know that the order was coming. But ultimately, she said, didn't really matter because after studying the ban, which she did as quickly as she could, uh, she quickly was convinced that it was not lawful or constitutional and she was not going to defend it. To defend it, she said, she was going to have to argue a pretext that she didn't believe was true. And that pretext, of course, was that the Ban had nothing to do with religion. So at that point, she said it was a simple decision for her. Uh, She was not going to be a part of that. And the Department of Justice should never be involved in advancing a pretext, she said. Uh, And the other question she then had was, was she gonna resign? If she had decided not to defend the ban, should she just leave? And she decided that as acting attorney general, she knew she was gonna be replaced at some point anyway, but she decided that she had a greater responsibility to uphold justice. And if she resigned, sure that would protect her personal integrity, but it would have left the Department of Justice uh, to advance an argument that was not grounded in the truth. But she closed by reflecting on these things that were giving her hope, and uh, that included people turning up at airports to protest the travel ban. And recently, uh, she talked about the kids in Parkland, Florida, who, after this tragic school shooting, have organized to fight for sensible gun control. And indeed, tomorrow morning here in Philadelphia and in cities all across the country, we're going to see that in action uh, as there's to be a march for our lives here march for our lives of course was organized by the parkland kids And tomorrow morning, I'll also be listening to Tim Wu, the Columbia law professor who coined the term net neutrality, and then checking out the march before I head back to New York. And you know, you can look for my report on the PW website next week about Tim Wu's talk, which I'm sure is going to be fascinating, and the rest of the PLA meeting, and probably some stuff about the march. I'm sure I'm going to have to make my way through that to get home to New York City. And that'll all be on the PW website next week. Uh, And also, I have to say, I took a trip to the Philadelphia Free Library, where they unveiled a short
0: story atm. Okay, so wait a minute. I can't let you go without telling me a little bit about this. A short story atm. Does it dispense uh, updikes and beaties? <laughs>
1: it dispenses short stories, we'll put it that way. Not updikes and beaties. Something tells you there's a copyright issue that might arise with dispensing those. I
0: mean, instead of Washingtons and Franklins as well. <laughs>
1: Um, well, it's an interesting little experiment. And you would think that we have a short story ATM in our pocket right now. with you know, We can pull out our phones and look at Facebook at any time. But what this machine does, and what's really interesting, and it was sponsored by the Knight Foundation, which I found interesting too, is that you can walk up to it. It has three buttons on it, one minute, three minute, five minutes. And that pertains to how long the story should take you to read. And you press the button, and it prints out this receipt with your short story on it. And you can walk away with it and read it on the train read it wherever you're going hand it off to a friend give it away you know obviously it's not the most effective way to communicate a short story in this digital age when you can do everything over your phone but it really sort of puts literacy front and center in people's minds right you're sitting at the train station and it just makes you think about reading it just makes you think about the library and I found it to be um, a really fun little thing and I actually printed out a story for myself and they're all labeled at the top with what genre they're in I guess you know you can't mistake satire or humor or something they're, they're curious about that or they're they're worried about that uh, and i got this cute little story it, it's called a potted plant and <laughs> uh it was really neat i thought it was an interesting little uh adventure for the library and the knight foundation to get into and you'll probably see a few in boston over the next few years
0: When Beyond the Book returns, P.W.'s Andrew Albany's previews the 2018 London Book Fair. I'm Christopher Keneally with copyright clearance center's Beyond the Book. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly,
0: and I'm Rose Fox, I'm a
1: senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing.
0: Every week we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com/pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book with Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly. It's Friday, March 23rd, 2018. And Andrew, you and I will both return to London next month for the Book Fair at Olympia Hall. The show opens on Tuesday, April 10th. In Monday's issue, PW presents its annual London Book Fair rights briefcase, a sneak peek at the show's hottest titles. What about the London Book Fair this year are you most excited about, Andrew?
1: London in spring. (laughs) That's always like the most exciting part of this for me. Oh, to be
0: in England now that April's there, said Browning. But I'll tell you, this
1: year's fair, I mean, the last few years have been very strong for the London Book Fair, right? There's been, we heard Marcus Dole in Frankfurt talk about the, the... the renaissance of print and how that stabilized the market. And indeed the London book fair uh, has felt that for the last couple of years. So I think booksellers are feeling pretty good going back into this year's London book fair, but while the book business has stabilized, I don't think it's fair to say that the world (laughs) is in a stable situation right now. And I expect a lot of those issues to arise at the fair this year. And one of the things that I'm most looking forward to this year is the, the digital conversation, because even though we're not talking about eBooks anymore, Uh, We've moved on from that conversation. The digital situation is as cloudy as it's ever been and there are new threats, whether it's censorship, whether it's the rise of blockchain, there's all kinds of new things, copyright legislation that are just, you know, really raising a lot of wild cards now. We've moved on from eBooks, but Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and data and privacy, all of these issues are really, they hold great implications for the publishing uh, industry going forward. So I'm interested to see how the industry addresses that at this year's London Book Fair. And a lot of those issues are on the program this year, which looks like a very strong program. And at the quantum pre-fair day, which is on Monday this year, there's a lot of interesting stuff, uh, including about audio books, which, of course, are one of the fastest growing segments in the industry. And in a conversation that I had with with your boss, with Tracy Armstrong, Copyright Clearance Center, She raised a point that I hadn't really thought about, and that's millennials who are now coming into the market. She noted that that there's gonna be millions and millions of millennials working as knowledge workers by the year 2025, and that's going to have a huge impact on the market. I thought that was a terrific point, and I'm really gonna be going into this year's London Book Fair, looking at how the impact of millennials on the publishing market is gonna manifest itself.
0: Well, certainly one of the things I'll be excited about, uh, Andrew, is to hear Daniel Hahn, who will be joining Nicola Solomon from the Society of Authors, for a program on Thursday at 1 o'clock called Aspirations and Anxieties, How Authors See Copyright Today. And interestingly, this is at a really uh, important moment in policy and in public awareness around copyright. And uh, it's going to explore, this discussion is going to explore how authors Respond to the threats and the opportunities that all these changes present, because after all, wouldn't you want to hear from copyright holders what they think about copyright? So that is Thursday at 1 p.m. And I'm also going to moderate a panel at 1 p.m. on Wednesday that's taking a look at small steps, giant leaps, digital transformation experience. And we've got. Uh, a number of uh, really interesting guests Including Catherine Earle from Bloomsbury Publishing Junaid Mubin from Wiz Education And Karen Showman, the Editorial Director for Books at Sage London Looking at what makes for a successful digital transformation project And um, the panelists will share some stories of innovation in publishing And we'll be um, later podcasting that to our listening audience So they can look forward to that So um, as you say, Andrew, nothing nothing better than being in London for April. We look forward to seeing you in person. We will have more about the London Book Fair next week when you return to uh, Beyond the Book, and hope you have a great weekend there in Philadelphia.
1: Thank you. I I look forward to
0: getting back to New York, that is if I can get through the
1: March for Our Lives and the snow lets up.
0: (laughs) I'm sure you'll have no trouble with either one. All right. You take care. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly, senior writer. Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always in the wake of revelations over cambridge analytica's data harvesting of facebook profiles company founder and ceo mark zuckerberg has faced calls in the us and the uk to answer questions about his social media companies data gathering and data sharing practices data hoarding has certainly proven good business for facebook as well as other social media companies including google and twitter and in his new book privacy author bj mendelson declares that privacy at least as we once knew it was sold down the digital river a long while ago the tech companies have done a wonderful job uh fortunately for them unfortunately for us of painting themselves into this almost utopian kind of brush of being cuddly and friendly and and promoting all these wonderful things but the bottom line has always been your data equals a whole lot of money and they'll do whatever it takes to get as much of it as they can privacy lost and found Next, on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries RightsDirect Direct and IXIS drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book.